All right. Good evening. Welcome to our Bible study tonight on the life of Christ. I'm excited to get into tonight's texts. We're going to be uh, looking at a couple of interesting passages. I mean, really all the Gospels. You know, there's so much more to the Gospels than the Sunday school lessons we grew up with. At least so. Keep in mind, the Sunday school lessons you grew up with, hopefully, were taught on the level of a child. And uh, the Gospels have a lot deeper truths than those taught to a child. Obviously, that's appropriate to kind of keep it surface level, elementary, even, you know, upper elementary level. Once you get older, you really need to be taking advantage of the philosophy, the theology, the life-changing, practical uh, lessons and truths that God's Word gives us. Didn't Christ say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life? Didn't He state that the truth will set you free? Didn't He clarify that statement when He told us about the two houses, one that was built on the sand and one on the rock? The one on the sand heard the truth, didn't follow it, was destroyed. The one on the rock heard the truth, follow it, and was successful. Truth itself will not fix your life. <laughs> Just because your kids go to Christian school doesn't mean their future is locked in, guaranteed success. Just because you go to church, this church or any church, doesn't guarantee your future success. Just because your church is a good church and the truth is taught here or somewhere else doesn't guarantee your success. Truth itself only offers the opportunity of success. That's towards Christ, the narrow path, the broad path being lies and deceptions. But just because the path is there and just because you know it's there doesn't mean you've taken it. Well, Pastor Russ, I'm saved. So I take the path. I mean, if, I, if I'm saved, then I'm on the path. Isn't that the case? No, uh, I, I get that if you're saved, you're going to heaven. But the narrow path isn't just, in my opinion, referring to Christians, saved individuals. I believe the narrow path is referring to those who are following Christ. I believe there are a lot of Christians still on the broad path of destruction. They've accepted Christ. They're going to heaven, but they're still following the world. Uh, Mammon has become their master. The, The cares of this world have sucked their heart away from Christ. That is the broad path, saved or unsaved. And so tonight, we're going to be taking a look at Not the Sunday school lessons you grew up with, as you've noticed throughout this series. We're taking a look at the truths behind those lessons. Now, I'd actually like you to turn to Matthew chapter 11. I don't have a slide for this text because it's kind of uh, tagging on to our last week's lesson. Matthew chapter 11, and I want you to take a look at verse 18. I didn't have time to get to this particular truth, but I want to get to it now. So, Matthew 11, verse 18, John the uh, Baptist is in prison. The last time we were together, we discussed how John the Baptist in prison was having a moment of doubt. Uh, I mean, this is the guy whose job it was to foretell of the Messiah's coming. This is the guy who, who God chose of everyone in the world. <laughs> You're going to be the one who will be the cousin of Christ and inform the world that he has arrived. And then when this man who's been telling people of Christ for at least... One, if not closer to two years, we don't have the exact time, but one to two years, this man now in prison is saying, is Jesus the Christ that I've been claiming he was? He's kind of, you might say, second-guessing, doubting. I'm not going to reteach that lesson. That's what we taught last time. The point is this, even the, the, the strongest of believers have their moments of doubt. Christ did not reprimand this man. Christ did not belittle this man. Christ spoke highly of him, and Christ 
encouraged his faith by showing the disciples of John many miracles. We're told uh, just did, did uh, we're, we're, I think it was like an hour. Just for the next hour, we're told he did a bunch of miracles, and he, he told his messengers, go back and tell John the Baptist what you saw here today. So, uh, in verse 19, we're told that John is, is refer. I'm sorry, Jesus is referring to John the Baptist. And then in verse 18, he says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he hath a devil. And uh, verse 19, the son of man came eating and drinking. They say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a winebibber, a friend of publicans and sinners, but wisdom is justified of her children. So, <laughs> Uh, Jesus Christ, speaking of John, speaking highly of John, um, he is, is stating a very important truth that I want to give you tonight. Not just that John the Baptist was a great prophet. Not just that John the Baptist's faith was, was secure in Christ. Very interesting text where verse 9, 18, he says, John came, he didn't eat, he didn't drink. Now, we know he ate and we know he drank. He ate locusts. He ate honey. He obviously drank water. He would not have survived. So it's not saying he didn't eat any food or drink any liquids. It's specifically referring to he did not eat the, the nice foods that you'd find at parties. He did not drink specifically wine. How do I know that? Because verse 19 gives the opposing view of Christ. Christ, when he came, did eat. Eat with the publicans. He ate with the sinners, not just with who he ate, but what he ate. And verse 19, drinking. Now, there are those who state that Christ never drank wine. I, I don't know how they can say that when we find that Christ turned water into wine. Well, that wine was grape juice. The wine was just a, a, a something we would buy at Stop and Shop, you know, and you, you serve it at Thanksgiving. It wasn't actually wine. I get their arguments. I know what they're saying. I don't agree with them. Verse 19, I think, clarifies that when it says, you call me gluttonous and a wine-bibber. Kind of hard to accuse a man of being a wine-bibber if he only drinks grape juice. The accusation is much more uh, likely, whether it's true or not. Christ wasn't a drunk, but you can't call a man. No one can call me a drunk. I don't drink alcohol at all. I, I, I don't, it's not my house. I never drink it. So no one can call me a drunk. But someone who drinks alcohol can be accused of a drunk. Being a drunk doesn't mean they are, but the accusation can be made. My point is... I am not condoning alcohol consumption, but we need to be honest with Scripture. We need to be honest with ourselves. And when we lie and cover up truths of Scripture to protect people, well, if we tell people they can drink alcohol, then they will get drunk. Well, that's not necessarily true. <laughs> well, what about my children? If, I tell, if, if we teach... That wine is okay, I'm concerned that my children will grow up and drink alcohol. Well, then that's a conversation you should have with your children, but not by lying to them. There are other discussions you can have regarding alcohol, the dangers of alcohol, uh, without having to pretend the Bible is saying something different. I would never want to twist Scripture to convince my child of something that's important to me. If we're not honest with Scripture, someday our children will find out. And when they do, they will question everything we said about Scripture. You know what I found? That when you're honest with Scripture, people will still listen to your arguments. They're not going to, oh, well, you know, Christ drank wine, therefore I'm going to become a drunk. I mean, that's not necessarily, that's a big jump from A, a to whatever letter of the alphabet you're at there, right? 
But um, I just feel like I, I, I'm pretty strongly opinionated in this matter that a lot of churches are losing a lot of children when they become adults because in their head they wanted to protect the children, but they did so by lying about Scripture. And this text is pretty obvious to me that Christ drank wine, which is why the Pharisees called Christ, you might say, a wino, a drunk. Was Christ a drunk? Obviously not. Did Christ drink wine? Most definitely. Now, in that time, was the wine of the same alcoholic content of whiskey today? Of course not. If you look at historical documents, it was watered down, and that's what a lot of pastors say. Well, it was so watered down, it was essentially grape juice. Well, not necessarily. I'm not going to say so watered down that it was grape juice. I would say, uh, from my own research, looking at documents even outside of the Bible, um, that there would be levels of watered-down wine. And I would imagine a good parent isn't going to give their child non-watered-down wine, wine that could get them drunk. I mean, I'm sure there's bad parents out there. But the, the status quo, I think, was, you know, based off the age, would depend on how watered-down your wine was. <laughs> and as you got older, as your body could handle more, the wine necessarily wasn't as watered-down. Uh, enough about that. I just want to point that passage out because we are here and we should not, as Christians, be scared of truth. Now, I will say this. It's okay for truth to make you uncomfortable. Don't be scared of being uncomfortable. In fact, that could be a good sign. When it makes you uncomfortable, it makes you really determine what do you believe and why. If you say, well, I, really, I still rust. You haven't convinced me. I still believe it's not okay to drink. Fair enough. I'm not going to argue with that. I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. Just don't use Scripture to prove it, please. If you're going to state, I don't think we should drink wine or alcohol of any type, great. Give me your reasons. And I'm not going to say I disagree with you, by the way. Let's have our reasons, and let's give it to them, and let's not point to verses and say, here's why I believe. And so let's use Scripture the way it's intended to be used, truth, and not a manipulative tool that a lot of Christians, unfortunately, fall into. Okay, let's move on. So in Matthew chapter 11 now, Verse 21, Jesus Christ, we're told in verse 20, he begins to upbraid the cities. <laughs> I, I, uh, it's not like he's talking to buildings. I, I feel like when it says upbraiding the cities, obviously he's talking to a group of people about the cities. He's basically condemning cities. You know, a lot of people do this. They'll condemn cities. Los Angeles comes up quite often, San Francisco, Chicago, right? In conversations about cities that are struggling, there are a few cities, New York City, that will often come up and, man, they are so self-destructive, right? So you are upbraiding the entire city. Uh, essentially, what are you doing? You're, you're, you're calling down bad leadership, really, but the leadership has affected the population, and the population is making very poor choices. If you lived in another part of the world, I'm sure other cities would be mentioned, depending on the country you dwelt in. But that's what Christ is doing. He is bringing up particular cities which were known for having issues. Now, I was not alive back then. I can't tell you exactly what these issues would look like. But I think we've got a pretty good idea, even in the 21st century, with this, the issues large cities might have under poor leadership and a uh, laissez-faire attitude of live and let live. We can kind of imagine what that might look like. So in verse 21, Christ begins to speak of some of these cities. He says, woe unto you, Chorazin. Woe unto you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty work done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sackcloth 
and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than you. Now, interesting, the, the, the cities Tyre and Sidon are actually mentioned quite often in the prophetic book, specifically Isaiah. When Isaiah the prophet is giving chapter after chapter of this country will be judged, this nation will be judged, this city will be judged, these two cities came up more than once of the judgment they would receive. So during Isaiah's life, that was towards the end of the time of the kings. Uh, King David's long dead. King Solomon's long dead. The kingdom's already been split for some time. And uh, you've got uh, king after king after king on the northern kingdom making only wicked choices. And then in the southern kingdom, some kings were good, some kings were bad. And then along comes Isaiah and starts telling them, guys, it's, it doesn't look good from here. It's going to be bad. Uh, you're going to go into exile. God's going to judge you. But God's also going to judge these other cities. And the tier, cities of Tyre and Sidon are brought up. Uh, specifically, their pride is mentioned. The, their wickedness and how they dealt with their neighbors is mentioned. They, were, they seemed to be pretty violent people, but they also loved money. Tyre and Sidon were, were known for being wealthy cities, and they loved nice things. And in their pride, they believed, according to the book of Isaiah, like nothing could ever destroy us. We are going to be here till the time ends. Like Tyre and Sidon will outlast all nations, all countries, all cities. Does that sound familiar? You kind of feel like we live in a country now that has that inner belief like nothing could ever destroy the United States. Until the end of time, the United States will be here. Like we've imposed our philosophy of the longevity of the United States into the end times theology of Revelation. Like there are people that that dogmatically claim the United States is in the book of Revelation. Where? I don't see it. But how could we not be? Like we're a world power. You know, and so they're literally changing theology, changing the end timeline to match their belief that surely the United States has to still be here in the book of Revelation. Surely not. Tyre and Sidon thought the same thing, and Sodom and Gomorrah, I have no doubt, thought the same thing, and look what happened to them. In fact, uh, Christ is going to mention Sodom in verse 23. He says, and now Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven. You know, again, pride. They thought they were better than everyone else. Shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. What is Christ saying? The cities that were judged in their pride and in their wickedness, if Christ had chosen to come during those times when Sodom still existed and had walked the streets of Sodom and had done miracles, Christ is stating it, so it surely must be true. He is saying there would have been a revival in that city and there would not have been a need for judgment. And he says the same about Tyre and Sidon. If I had walked the cities and done the works that I do now, if I had done then, those cities would have lasted. These cities must have been pretty wicked for Christ to point them out specifically. They must have been pretty prideful for Christ to be in their midst doing amazing miracles, and they still reject him. They are more wicked in Christ's determination than Sodom, and we have a pretty good idea how wicked Sodom was. By the way, I will state this about Sodom. Most people attach the sin of immorality to Sodom. 
Christ does mention that briefly. I do not personally believe that is why Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. I think there's a whole lot more issues going on in those cities than the issue of immorality. But Christ is pointing out the wickedness of these cities, and it has been said many times to me, if I could see the work of God visually with my eyes, then I would believe. That may or may not be true, but that's not a dogmatic statement you can make. Because there were many people, when Christ was alive, who had the advantage of seeing, literally, the works of Christ and chose to reject him. Not just reject him, but we're going to find, claim, and proclaim (laughs) that Christ was of the devil. It's one thing to say, I don't believe. Something else to say altogether different. I do believe that you're Satan. Right? To kind of take a neutral stance, like, you know what? I could care less one way or the other. I'm just going to stay out of it. I I have no interest. I have no no, uh, skin in the game. (laughs) But for people to go in and say, I do believe, and here's what I do believe, it's the opposite of what you claim. That's what was going on during the time of Christ. So look at verse 24. I say unto you, that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Have you ever heard of uh, Dante's story of the various levels of hell? (laughs) It, It is a Catholic belief that there are levels of hell and uh, purgatory being the, you know, the best, almost close to heaven, but not quite there, <laughs> and you kind of a holding place you might sell, and saying people can be prayed out of purgatory. They were good, but not good enough. Um, they weren't Catholic, maybe, but they weren't really evil people. They go to purgatory, right? You can pray them out of purgatory according to that Catholic religion. You can buy them out of purgatory. Did you know that? You can pay money to light some candles on their behalf. It's not the candle <laughs> that they really care about. It's the money you're dropping. In fact, that's no new uh, belief system. For hundreds of years, the Catholic religion has been teaching the masses that you can purchase your loved ones out of hell, out of purgatory. I mean, if that was true, what amount of money are you not willing to pay to get your mother, father, dare I say child, out of hell, right? What an evil thing to do. What an evil manipulative tool to inform you that you can spend money to get them out. And the t- the, as the tr- saying would go, the truth would go, the more money you spend, the better chance they have of getting out. Now, I've never paid money to get someone out of purgatory. I don't believe that. I've never talked with the priest specifically about that. My understanding would be a priest couldn't tell you exactly how much, which, by the way, is to their advantage. Just keep giving, because the more you give, the more likely they get out. There is never... Hey, it's guaranteed, you know, 200 gets them out. <laughs> you sure? 200 is all you got because they could still be there. 2,000, I don't know if that's enough. 2 million? Ah, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll tell you yes. That'll make you feel good for 2 million. You get the point? Where did the Catholic Church get this idea that there are various levels of hell? Well, got it from Scripture. Did you know that um, just because someone twists Scripture so severely that the truth looks so odd doesn't mean there isn't truth in, within that teaching. Now, are there various layers of hell as described by Dante? I'm not so convinced of that. Uh, The man didn't travel to hell and have a personal experience. It's his own, you know, uh, fictional uh, idea of how it might look. But 
there is very clearly here in Matthew chapter 11, verse 24, first of all, I want to point out, there is clearly hell. And there's clearly judgment in hell. All right, so we got to get that right away straightened out. You do realize there are religions, there are people in religions, there are spiritual leaders, there are pastors that do teach very strongly hell is an idea, not a place. There is a belief that God is so loving he wouldn't send someone to hell. That's how they kind of answer the question, why would a loving God send someone to hell? Their answer would be, he doesn't, there is no hell. Well, I see how in the Bible, oh, no, no, it's just a non-existence. They would explain it as, well, there's heaven where you're with God, and there's hell where you're not with God, and you just cease to exist. That is hell. Except that's not what I read in the Gospels. When Christ describes hell, he describes it as uh, gnashing of teeth, weeping. He describes it as a place of pain and thirst. We're told of the rich man in Lazarus who is in so much pain, the rich man in hell, and he lifts up his eyes and says, just give me one drop of water. One drop of water is better than what, what I got here. It's so painful, he begs for someone to go to his family so they won't join him in hell. For sure, hell is a real place. Well, then we're back to the question of why would a loving God send someone to such a horrible place? Well, of course, there's the answer. He doesn't send them. They choose to go. Okay, well, then why would a loving God allow them to choose? Why wouldn't a loving God stop them? Well, if a loving God takes away choice and man loses free will, then man is no longer man. He's something altogether different. Once free will has been taken from us, we are robots. We are slaves. God has kidnapped our souls. Is that what you want? You want to be without choice? Well, no, I want choice. I just don't want there to be consequences for choice. So why doesn't God just send us into that non-existence hell as some believe? That seems like the best-case scenario. If there truly is a God, then why would he not uh, just create a, a, a cease of existence? Why send us to hell? Why create hell in the first place? What kind of loving God would be so psychotic as to create such a horrible place? Well, you've got to understand the Bible tells us that hell wasn't created for man. Hell was created for Satan and his demons. And if anyone deserves to go to hell, it's Satan and his demons. Hell was designed to be as evil uh, a judgment, uh, horrible as a judgment as the evilness of these individuals, Satan, Lucifer, and his followers, who have for centuries have been manipulating and deceiving mankind from God. Well, why does mankind have to join Satan and his demons in hell? If God had to create it for Satan and his demons, couldn't he have allowed man to go into that purgatory that, that Catholics believe or the non-existence that some evangelicals believe? Well, because we're back to God-created eternal souls. You see, there's an answer to everything. You may not like the answer. The answer may make you uncomfortable, but the answer is there. If God took away our eternal souls, then he takes away our humanity. He takes away what, we, what makes us human. We become animals. You know, animals have free will. You know that, right? So we could have free will without souls, but then we'd be dogs and cats. We'd be lions. And Some people say, well, that's better. I'd rather be that. Well, you say that until you become who? Nebuchadnezzar for seven years wandering in the, beast, in the fields like a beast. <laughs> and when he was done, he walked right back to the city. He didn't stay in it. I'm not going to go into detail on that story, but there's a story of a man losing his mind, becoming a beast. He did not enjoy that time. So you can claim whatever you want. doesn't mean it's true. The reason that we 
have to go to heaven or hell is because we're not beasts of the field. We have souls. And souls are what make us human, and our free will is what keeps us from being enslaved humans. So when you take our free will, when you take our eternal souls, we are now left with, right back at the beginning, heaven or hell. Well, if a loving God truly cared, then why wouldn't he keep people from going to hell? Well, aside from dragging them, kicking and screaming to heaven, what more do you want God to do? Sent his son to earth, gave us the Bible, did miracles, uses the church to reach the world. The Bible is the most published book. The Bible is the most well-known book in the world. People know more about the Bible, even unsaved, uh, as a general whole than any other book. What more is God supposed to do? Nature itself points to God. Well, God should send angels so that we can see them in the sky and that we can know that he exists. And he's going to do that during the tribulation. You know what's going to happen? People are going to curse God and say, rock, get in, I'm going to jump in front of this rock. I'd rather die than submit to the God that I do see his angels flying in heaven. Angels flying in the skies won't guarantee people getting saved. It would just make them more, you might say, spiritually minded. It doesn't mean they're going to submit to God. They'll just make up their own religion, the religion of the angels, the religion of the flying angels, and have churches of the holy angels, which, by the way, there are those out there already. <laughs> you get the point? We can try to clean up man's mess. There is no way for us to clean up man's mess, which is why we need a Savior, which is why we have a Savior, and we have the free will to accept or reject him. Getting back to hell, there are, it seems, various levels of judgment in hell. Christ says that in verse 24 very clearly, that some will be judged more harshly than others. Based off of what? Well, here, based off of not so much what they did. You catch that? Because we often think layers of hell based off of murderers go here, rapists, you know, go down there, uh, people who abuse children, like, they're at the very bottom of hell. I'm not saying, by the way, you know, that there's not justification for extreme punishment for these people. I'm just saying that I don't see that in Scripture. It's actually not layers of judgment for what you did. It's layers of judgment for the truth you knew and rejected. You know what, I've always, since I've understood this truth, part of me is almost saddened when I give someone truth and reject it because I now know they're responsible for what, responsible for what I gave them. Now, look, if they're going to die and go to hell, they're going to go to hell whether I said something or not. But there is, it seems in my heart and head, a truth that if they die and go to hell, it could be worse for them if I actually tell them about Christ and they don't get saved. Now, obviously, I'm still going to tell them about Christ with the hopes they do get saved. But that's what's going on here. Not that Sodom was better, morally better, than uh, these other cities, Capernaum. But that Capernaum had more truth given to them and still rejected. Sodom did not have that kind of truth offered to them and rejected. So, having said that, hell's a real place. Hell's not a place anyone wants to go. Hell is not a state of non-existence. There is pain in hell. There is judgment in hell. But there are various levels of judgment in hell, and I don't know how light the judgment is. I don't know how heavy the judgment will get. In my opinion, eternal judgment away from God itself is a horrible, horrible thing. But I do not believe all people will suffer the same amount of judgment. Let me end with this. Because 
this is usually, when I talk to teenagers specifically, the questions that come up. What about those who never heard? And what about infants? So let's talk about those who never heard. The Bible tells us that nature itself declares the glory of God. So those who've never heard are still responsible uh, with the truth God has given them through creation, through nature. Well, but let's say that they see nature and they recognize there is a God out there uh, and they accept that truth and they still don't get saved. Well, then we have to trust the character of a God that would send his son to earth to seek and to save the lost. Would that same God's character send someone to an individual in this world who is seeking him? I can only come to one conclusion. That answer is yes. Now, I try not to use stories to prove a truth because stories are experiential and they're, they, they're not good truth setters. The scripture is a truth setter. But there are many stories of missionaries who have been sent to people groups and the people groups tell them, we've been looking. You're the answer. Christ, you know, God, we've been calling out to a God and here you are. There's more than one story like that throughout human history. And so I think that those are good examples of how it probably looks, that when someone is seeking God, the Bible does tell us, draw nigh to him, and he will draw nigh to you. The Bible does tell us he is seeking us. God is seeking us. So when someone responds, I can only believe that a loving God who would send his son to the earth and is seeking the lost would take advantage of a lost person who's responding to that seeking. So that's what I believe about those who never heard the gospel. God is completely powerful enough to get the truth to that, to that individual. I don't, believe, I don't see God in Scripture. There's, he's not portrayed in this way where someone who really wants the truth, God turns his back and says, sorry, you're of no interest to me. Oh, sorry, you're too far away in the jungles. I can't get someone to you at this time. Sorry, maybe, next, maybe your kids, you know, but you're going to have to die and go to hell even though you want the truth. I don't see that in Scripture, and I have not seen that personally in my own life. All right, so let's go now to... By the way, I also lead, I end with this, with, with teenagers. It, a lot of them are still bothered, you know. I, I can see why. Teenagers thinking, well, that still seems unfair, they would say. doesn't seem fair that they, they have to essentially, you know, make choices to get to that point where God would send someone, whereas we have, like, the Bible available to us. And, you know, and so many, so many um, Bibles in our own home, and there's people with no Bible. Here's what I tell them. Do you care enough to go yourself? Yeah, the answer varies. They may say yes, but they don't really mean it. The truth is, 10 minutes later, their mind is completely on something different. They've, lo- they've lost all memory of what bothered them 10 minutes earlier. So if they really believed it was unfair and unjust, they'd do something about it. And those are the people God's going to use to go to those people who need it. <laughs> Otherwise, we're just gaslighting. You know, we're just saying stuff to make people feel bad or make us feel good. God has no interest in appeasing those kinds of individuals. All right, let's talk about infants. Do infants go to hell? Uh, there is a phrase, age of accountability. That phrase is not actually in the Bible. In any version of the Bible that I'm aware of, as you know, I teach and preach from the King James, I'm not aware of any version using that phrase, age of accountability. If you do know of a version that states that phrase, I'd love to hear it because I don't know that's the case. But uh, the phrase age of accountability is not in the Bible. It's a phrase that is thrown around by Christians. The definition age of accountability would be that a child, 
until they come of a certain age, when they die, will go to heaven, and uh, God will not send them to hell if they don't have the ability cognitively uh, to make a decision for Christ. Now, the phrase is not in Scripture, but the principle of that phrase is in Scripture. We read in uh, the, uh, the Old Testament, in the book of 2 Samuel, as David had committed sin with Bathsheba, they have a son together, and uh, the son is, I believe, less than a year. David had committed um, Bathsheba, and for a year he was living in sin, and then the prophet came, uh, Nathan, and we're told it had been a year since the sin, so the, the boy was, was still an infant, less than a year old. And he says, God's going to judge you. And part of that judgment is you're going to lose your son. Your son's going to pass. Now, when that happens, we're told David, brokenhearted, prays to God, asks for mercy, and the boy dies. When David is praying for God's mercy to not allow his young infant son to die, we're told he doesn't eat, he's crying, he's a mess, not showering, not bathing. Then when the servants come to tell David that his young infant son had died, David says, let's clean up, get me a meal, let's move on. And the servants are in shock. David, when your son was dying, you were dying in agony yourself. And now that your son is dead, you're going to act like everything's normal. And David states, when he was still alive, there was still hope, and I was praying for that hope. But now that he's passed, the hope of him living is gone. He's dead. But David says this. He says, I will see him again in heaven. Again, I'm paraphrasing. That's not what the King James says in those, in those exact words. That's what it is meaning to say, that I'll see him again. And so we know David's going to heaven. So David's saying, I'll see him again. We know his baby's going to heaven. Now, this is not just the musings of an old man who hopes for the best. This is inspired scripture. David, who knew God personally, a man's after God's own heart, giving what I believe very strong truth. David, knowing the heart of God, God giving his heart to David and through David to us, And isn't it great how God uses a tragedy, a judgment, to give us one of the most comforting verses of the Old Testament, if you know it and understand it, that the unborn who are aborted, that the the miscarried infants, that young infants who die for, for various reasons, they go straight to the arms of God. Now, here's the problem with that phrase, age of accountability, not that it's not in the Bible. It is in the Bible. But that a lot of people I've talked to, they want to put the age of accountability at like eight. I've talked to some that like they say middle school, 12 and 13. Like that's hard for me to accept. Now, the Bible does not give us a certain age that what point, you know, someone's no longer responsible <laughs> for their choices. The Bible doesn't mention that phrase again, so we don't know. But I will tell you that I was saved at five. My older three daughters were all saved from five to six, maybe seven, six and a half-ish, I think, was the oldest one that got saved. Um, I've worked with children for many, many years, and i got to tell you, five, six, seven-year-olds are definitely capable of getting saved. Are all five-year-olds? No. I've met some five-year-olds, like, they're still clueless. I mean, you know, there's something going on. They just haven't matured enough. Their brain hasn't matured enough. They're not ready. Um, Maybe some six-year-olds, young six-year-olds, maybe, uh, but... (laughs) I don't believe the age of accountability is in reference to a particular age of adulthood where you're not accountable for your rejection of Christ as long as you're under your parents. I believe it's referring to your inability to understand 
salvation, who Christ is, what the Bible states about him. So you can't reject what you don't truly understand because of your maturity level. So I, that would also, by the way, in my opinion, very strongly in, opinionated, uh, include those who um, extreme autism, those who cannot understand on a level past three or four years old, regardless of their age. They also, when they pass, will go straight to heaven. But there is a heaven and there is a hell. And Christ is not condemning these cities to hell. They're already on their way to hell. <laughs> He's stating it's going to be worse for you because you had a lot of truth and you still said no. If that bothers you, then I'm going to ask you the same thing that I asked the teenagers. What are you going to do about it? Well, Pastor Russ, I mean, look, I'm old. I have a family. I'm not going to go across the ocean to a nation. No problem. There's people dying and going to hell in Meriden. What are you going to do about it here? You don't have to go anywhere other than outside your door. Well, Pastor Russ, it's awkward. Well, that's, that's the real issue. See, your comfort zone is more important to you than someone's eternal condition. Now, there is a problem. When you become so crazy in your outreach, you actually turn people away from God. It has been said, I, I read this before, it has been said by, it was an atheist who said this. He says, you know, one reason I don't believe Christians are telling the truth is because I know what you believe about hell, this, this fellow said. He said, I know what you believe about hell. And he said, if I believed about hell what you believed about hell, he said, all day, every day, I'd be outside screaming from, a, from the corner of the road, begging people to go to heaven. And he, said, he essentially said, because you're not doing that, you must not really believe it. Here's the problem with this man's logic. <laughs> Screaming from the side of the road at people they drive by isn't an effective way <laughs> to see them saved, is it? You're doing more damage than good, in my opinion. You know what is an effective way? Christ's way. And what was Christ's way? Any guesses? Love. That was Christ's way. Screaming at people will push them away. I get the man's sentiment. He's basically stating Christians don't seem as enthusiastic about the eternal souls as they claim if they really believe hell. That I actually agree with. I just don't think screaming on the side of the road is the answer to that enthusiasm. Where's the enthusiastic love? That's the answer. Where's the dynamic, life-changing, unconditional, never-ending, unceasing, daily love, like crazy love, like... There is crazy, crazy, and then there's crazy love. People will appreciate crazy love. Like, it just doesn't make sense. Why would you do this for me? Why would you give this to me? Like, you're crazy, but I appreciate it, right? It won't turn them off. It'll be like, something's different about you, and I want to know what it is. You stand at the corner and say, you're all going to hell. Where? Come follow me to heaven. People are like, oh, another psycho over there. They're not going to stop their cars, kneel on the ground, and get saved. And so I'm not stating we all need to go out and start throwing Bibles at people. I'm not stating we need to start knocking on their doors and saying, you know, grabbing by the arm, please get saved. I'm not letting go of you till you do because I don't want you to go to hell. You will traumatize people and do more damage than good. You will not traumatize people with healthy, godly, unconditional love. That will heal their trauma and bring them to Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. So I'm going to tell you this. If you're truly bothered by hell and the fact that people are going there, I'll tell you what you're doing wrong and what you can do more of. You are losing sight 
of that horrible, horrible truth, that truth that makes you uncomfortable. Remember, I started with this. Don't be afraid of uncomfortable truths. They can bring change to you. Because if you only accept truths that make you comfortable, you're going to pick and choose. You're going to lose a lot of growth opportunities. This one makes me uncomfortable. I'm asked often, often, Russ, how do you do it? I'm not bragging. I'm just telling you straight up that I'm asked a lot. How do you do it? How do you do what you do? Someone said recently, I was helping out at an event, and someone said, Russ, you're everywhere. Like, you're always doing things. And they said, how do you do all of that? And I'm not, it was a conversation. Don't need to get into it. I'll give you my answer. It's not always stated in this way because I don't want to come across as, you know, cliche. But here is the answer. Because I love. And I recognize that there is no better way for me personally to impact the world God has called me to, this world, this community, this school, the students here, the families here, the people of this church, Meriden. There is no better way for me to bring a positive impact, not just so they feel good, but so they come to the good of Christ than to love them and to, like, overlove them. If you had the time to ask the students at Mid-State, all 200 of them, does Pastor Russ love you? I would bet everything I've got that well over 90% would say yes, well over. I'm not saying everyone, one or two might have a vendetta against me. I'm sure that's a very big possibility. I'd be shocked, utterly shocked, if out of 200, more than 20 said Pastor Russ doesn't love me. In fact, honestly, I'd be shocked if it was, le- if it was more than 10. In fact, I would almost dare say, I would be almost confident enough to say every single one of them would say Pastor Russ loves me. But I'm not that confident, so I won't say that. Almost confident enough. You know why? Because I do. And why would they say that? Because I don't just love them. I show it to them all the time. You ask the community right now, does Meriden Hills love you? I would imagine, again, I'm thinking 70, 80, easily 80 plus percent would say, yes, Marion Hills loves this community. How do I know that? Because they're saying that. We're not doing that to build a legacy. We're not doing that to, uh, to build a, a bigger church and have a bigger building. I mean, look around. Look, most of uh, <laughs> look at our finances at the front of the building. Uh, we get a lot of money coming in. You know what? It's going right back out again. And it's not going right back out into my bank account, okay? It's not going to my pocket. Like, we have a massive budget for outreach here and abroad. Massive, as far as percentage of money that comes in, a very large percentage is going right back out into the community locally and, and abroad. Why? Because I am convinced that the best way to attack the, the, the bind, the, the, the shackles of hell on people is to love them and to live truth. It doesn't do any good if you love them and live lies because then they'll either follow your lies or be unimpressed by your love because they see you're a hypocrite and they'll think there's an ulterior motive. But to love them and live truth now gives them something to consider, to ponder. It, it is, there's a lot of churches that actually love very well, a lot of Christians that love very well. You know what they do poorly at? Living truth. They struggle with that because they don't want to offend, because they love so much they don't want to offend. Uh, they don't want people to think ill of them. And so my question is, what's the point of your love then? Well, to help them feel good. Well, what, we're, I'm looking at eternity here. I, it's not a temporary, hope you feel good today, see you tomorrow. It's where are you going forever? And then there's those 
who live truth very well, and the love is lacking. Christ said, they'll know you're my disciples by your love. And Christ said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Christ said, know truth and follow truth. Both are needed, and a balance of both. All right, let's move on. Luke, let's go to another uh, book of the Bible. Luke chapter 7. All right, talking about this famous text, verse 36, of a woman who anoints the feet of Christ with ointment and then wipes and cleans it with her hair. Now, um, it is commonly believed that this woman is Mary Magdalene. There is no foundation for that belief. The first time we're introduced to Mary Magdalene is verse 2 of chapter 8. In verse uh, 2, chapter 8, certain women which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities married call Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils. Mary Magdalene in Luke 8, 2 is described as one who was demon-possessed. This woman, who's not even given a name, let alone Mary, has no name, is described as a woman of, of a sinful life, obviously a prostitute. So nowhere does Scripture ever define Mary Magdalene as an ex-prostitute. She is only defined as one whose demons were cast out. I do not believe this woman is Mary Magdalene. I believe that the reason the name is not mentioned is because Christ isn't going to belittle people. You know, I, I tell stories often. If you know me well enough, you know I'm a storyteller. I like to tell real stories, not ones I've made up. And the stories I know are the stories of interactions I've had with people. Uh, I don't think I, I almost never mention a name unless the name is like my mom or myself or my family and I am close enough where it won't offend them and I know that. If they're not related to me, I'm not mentioning their name. In fact, there are many times where I state, you don't know this person, so you don't think that you know the person, right? I mean, I've been in ministry for many years, like 20 years I've been serving God uh, in various ways of ministry. I've met a lot of people. Just because I'm mentioning someone you think you may know doesn't mean you, that's who I'm talking about, all right? The thing is that People are the same everywhere. They just have different names. So I could be telling a story that's very close to someone you know. doesn't mean that's who I'm talking about. But I don't mention names. Why? I, just because I can tell the story and we can learn from it doesn't mean I have to point out who they are. And I think that's what Christ is doing here. This woman is a woman of sin. She's a prostitute. The story is enough. We don't need to know her name. In fact, we meet another prostitute who is about to be stoned. We're not giving her name either. Remember when Christ says, those of you, who've never sinned, cast the first stone. We don't know her name. Don't you love that? Christ isn't out to embarrass you. God doesn't want to take your sins and display them for the world to see. Christ wants to save you from your sins, help you find a healthy place. He doesn't need to use your name as an example. And so in verse 36, the Pharisee, one, of the, one of the Pharisees desired him, Christ, that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. All right. Did Christ invite himself into this man's house, or did the Pharisee invite Christ? Read that verse again, verse 36. What happened? The Pharisee invited Christ, right? Uh, that's a very important detail. Christ is not imposing himself. The Pharisee said, I'd like you to come sit down and eat with me. So when Christ is there, verse 37, you know the story. A woman of the city, which was a sinner, that's a prostitute, she knew that Jesus sat at the Pharisee's house. She heard about that. She brings an alabaster box of ointment. Verse 38, she takes the ointment, 
uh, pours on his feet. She's crying, and she uses the tears and the ointment, the two mixed together, and she uses her hair to wipe the feet of Christ. All right, consider this. Don't get over the whole touching his feet thing. I know that would weird a lot of us out today. Someone touches your feet almost like, what's wrong with you? Don't, don't, like, my feet is my personal space. Like, even my, my spouse doesn't touch my feet, right? Whatever. I'm not saying that's true for all of us, but, you know, you get it, right? In our culture, we're not touching each other's feet. Get over that because in this culture, someone washed your feet. It was the proper thing to do to have your feet washed as you, as a guest, entered the house. So your feet were being touched probably on a daily basis in this culture. And you may not like that. You may think it's weird. That's just how it was. So it's not weird for this woman to be touching the feet of Jesus. There's nothing sexual about this. There's nothing awkward about this. Uh, Christ would have had his feet touched every day of his life, very likely, since he was a child. All right, so this is just one of those things. What's a little interesting is her using her hair to do it. (laughs) Also, the ointment's not so crazy because Christ, if you read on, Uh, The Pharisee and others there, they say, if Christ knew who this woman was, he wouldn't allow her to touch him. Verse 39, this man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner this woman uh, touches them, for she is a sinner. So the Pharisees aren't saying, how dare her touch his feet. The Pharisees are saying, how dare him allow a prostitute to touch his feet. And you know what's really mind-blowing? Christ did not pull back his feet from the prostitute. Christ, in my opinion, from what I see here, does not have an aversion to being worshipped by a prostitute, to having this prostitute cry on his feet and use her hair to, to anoint him. The Pharisees did. The Pharisees were of the mindset that they could be almost unclean by someone else's uncleanness. <laughs> well, that's crazy talk. You can't make me unclean. You, you, can't, you can't make me any more of a sinner than I already am, but you def- your sin can't be imparted on me. Uh, if, if you have a problem with lying, you sitting in my house eating dinner with you doesn't make me a liar. If you have a, an addiction to a particular sin, I don't become addicted because I hang around you unless I make that choice myself. You know, there are those who will almost jump back when they're near someone who obviously has problems. And, I, and I, I wonder, do they in some way believe that that person's problems will come upon them? That's just poor theology right there. Our choices are our own. Maybe, maybe for the Pharisees it wasn't so much in this case that they thought Christ would be a prostitute by being touched by a prostitute. But the testimony, oh, man, you let a prostitute touch you, that's just, that's just bad form. What a poor testimony you have, right? Earlier in Matthew, wine-bibber and a drunkard, now he's letting prostitutes touch him. What's wrong with this guy? You know what the great thing about Christ is? I love this. Christ had a solid testimony. Christ was not in the business of defending his solid testimony with skeptics. That is such a great truth. How many Christians spend hours of their time defending their solid testimony online against trolls? Like, what are you doing? Why do you care? Well, my testimony is so important. You could be Mother Teresa to these people. They're going to still go after you. Now you're tarnishing your testimony by pridefully defending yourself in an argumentative manner. And now you've just been drawn into their game. You heard the phrase before that um, you can wrestle a pig 
in the mud and get dirty, but in the end, the pig's going to like it. So that's the problem. When you try to defend your untarnished testimony with trolls, they're the only ones enjoying it. You're playing their game. Christ, he's going to answer these guys, but he's not going to say, oh, oh, you know, woman, step away. I need to have a good testimony in front of these trolls. You know, he's not going to do that. He cared more about the individual than, than these self-righteous Pharisees' definition of what righteousness should look like. Do not, as a Christian, change the definitions of morality so that self-righteous people in the world will be okay with what you view as right and wrong. Instead, live a moral life of truth and expect them to change. If you got the truth, why would you be the one changing? So Christ answers in verse 40, looks to Simon. I like this. He didn't actually look to the Pharisee, kind of um, a slight on the Pharisee. I don't think that it is little of Christ. I think Christ is showing the Pharisee definitely disrespect. He is for sure disrespecting the Pharisee. The Pharisee uh, and others are whispering about Christ. Christ does not confront them openly because they're not confronting him openly. So he gives a story and he slights the Pharisee and the others through this story. And he tells Peter, hey, two people both owed a lot of money and both were forgiven the money, but one owed more, one owed less. Which one is going to be more loving towards the lender when both are forgiven? Peter's answer is, well, the one who is forgiven more. Of course, if you're forgiven more, you're going to love more. And Christ says, exactly. He says, you, you've rightly judged, verse 43. He says in verse 44, he says, seest thou this woman? I entered the house, and thou gave me no water for my feet. You didn't give me any water. And... Um, <laughs> Then we're told, thou gave me some water, but she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. You know what? I think, um, hold on, I need to, I'm going to go back up here. And uh, let's see here. You know, it says at verse 40, Simon, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't uh, remember. Simon is the Pharisee, not Peter. I'm thinking Simon Peter. Ah, my bad. So Christ is still sliding him, but he's sliding him to his face. So give that what it's worth. So Simon, although Simon Peter is, is named Simon Peter, this Pharisee's name is also Simon. So Christ is talking to Simon the Pharisee. And he says, uh, when I came here, you never gave me ointment. You never washed my feet. Um, you never kissed me on the cheek, which would be a common greeting. And he says, basically, this woman hasn't ceased to do that since I arrived. This woman is showing me more respect than you are showing me as a host. So Christ is definitely calling this man out. And then in verse 48, he says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. And then those, verse 49, state, how can this man forgive sins? He said unto the woman, thy faith hath saved thee, go in peace. This woman was saved not because she anointed the feet of Christ. She is saved because she trusted Christ to forgive her sins. And she is worshiping Christ because she was forgiven. Now, you might say, well, it doesn't seem that she's saved until after she worships Christ. Um, I'm not so convinced. I believe that Christ is stating publicly and verbally what has already happened. Because he gives the parable of the two forgiven, and he says the one who's forgiven more is the one who loves, and he says this basically this woman loves me, and he, he's a, in my head connecting it to forgiveness. 
And so I believe that she already had accepted Christ is the Messiah. I'm going to go worship him, and I'm going to tell him thank you for, for being the Messiah, that I can be saved, which is why she's crying and wiping uh, his feet. And Christ is now stating out, uh, out loud what has already taken place, this woman's salvation. Well, of course, the Pharisees are upset that Christ would forgive sins. They don't think it's possible that Christ can do so. This is not the first time they've said that. will not be the last. That seems to be a common problem for them. There's two problems. How dare you uh, do miracles, and how dare you say people can be forgiven? In another passage, Christ says, is it easier to do miracles or easy to say you're forgiven? It's easier to say you're forgiven, which I've done already, but I'm going to do a miracle now to show you I can do both the hard and easy thing. And so this woman receives her salvation and worships Christ because of it. Now, we are out of time. I do want to point out uh, where we're headed. So Christ is going to have a conversation with the Pharisees. They're pretty upset. And uh, Christ is going to be casting out a demon. It seems that it could have happened the same day or, or sometime around this event of the woman worshiping Christ and washing his feet with her hair. Christ is going to cast demons out of a man, and the Pharisees are going, to, are going to claim that Christ is casting out in the name of Satan. And then we come to that well-known passage where Christ says, those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. That is a difficult verse for many people to understand. A lot of people think that the unpardonable sin is something they themselves have committed and therefore cannot be saved. A lot of young people are constantly worried that they have, are, or will be committing the unpardonable sin. And so next time we're together, I will give you scripture on what the unpardonable sin is and can it be committed by a believer. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your people, the chance to look into the Bible and to see truths. I pray that we would grow in our understanding of these truths and apply them to our lives. In Jesus' name.